Hello, robots, and welcome to this episode of Remedial Studies. My name is Hannah, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Rachel. Today, we're going to be talking about the movie, which was a smash hit from last summer on Netflix, called To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which is an adaptation of the YA romance novel by the same title, by the author, Jenny Han. Rachel. What did you think of this movie? (laughs) I thought it was very enjoyable and it was very sweet. And I, at times, actually found myself getting quite emotional because I feel like it talked about some truths about love that differs from our perception of it at times. And sometimes that gets too real for you, for you, girl. As it does for many people. But I thought it was really well done. It was really well produced. I loved the script. I loved the whole concept of it. Because we'll get into more of the plot in a minute. But the premise of it is one of my favorite tropes. Which is fake dating. I love fake dating. It's (laughs) so good. I'm like, fake dating, you say? And you sure this isn't going to turn into a real relationship? Huh? 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 (laughs) <laughs> like, it's, I can read 200 variations on it and be just as enthralled every time. Yeah. When the character of Peter is like, what if we pretended to date? I, like, literally rub my greasy little paws together <laughs> in delight. Like, I think, yes, yes. I think I actually, like, put my hand to my chest. Like, yes. <laughs> Do you want to give our listeners a brief synopsis? Um, I will try. To be brief, I usually (laughs) fail, but we will try. So, um, To All the Boys I've Loved Before is about um, a high school junior named Laura Jean Covey, who is trying to find her way in life after her older sister, Margot, goes to college in Scotland and breaks up with her boyfriend, Josh. Josh is one of five boys that uh, Laura Jean wrote these super intense love letters to that she then like hid away and never sent it was a thing she did to deal when she had really intense crushes there's this whole kind of thing that kind of comes into play where she talks about how she was in love with josh before he got with margot but she doesn't feel like she can act on those feelings obviously because margot like they just broke up and she knows that her older sister was in love with him and that's just the first layer of drama (laughs) (laughs) so after a few weeks of margo being away and laura laura hanging out with her younger sister kitty she finds that these letters are missing and have somehow been sent to all five boys because one of them peter who was i think she kissed him at like a sleepover in seventh grade yeah it was a her first boy girl yeah her first boy girl party it was during spin the bottle as as some people did. I never did. <laughs> but she... Y'all are going to hear how fucking stunted my middle school experience was by the end of this episode, I'm sure. But he he's basically telling her, because him and Genevieve, who was Laura's best friend in middle school, they just broke up. Or they're on a break or something. You know how high school students are. And she promptly faints, like, on the track field, wakes up, only to find Josh coming at her, looking devastated, and like, we need to talk. So in order to get out of this obviously horrific conversation that is bearing down upon her, she pulls Peter down to the ground and just fucking plants one on him. And then runs off. <laughs> and then runs off. Literally just runs away. She's confronted by... Um, I think it was Lucas, who was the other boy who comes out to her as gay. She had this really intense crush. They had a moment at homecoming. There's one boy who we, the letter is marked return to sender because it was a guy she met at summer camp. So she addressed it to the camp. And then there was the guy from Model UN (laughs) who we don't hear from. I think there's like a mid credit scene. I think he shows up. Yeah. (laughs) which, Which I thought was very sweet. But Peter comes to her to propose this idea that he he wants his ex-girlfriend back and in order to make her jealous he wants to make genevieve believe that he's moved on and he 
knows that Laura Jean wants to get rid of Josh for some reason, like wants to get him off her back for, for, he comes to light that she's written other letters and he acts very offended. Like, (laughs) what do you mean? You sent them to four other guys. And he's like, you're a player. (laughs) He's like, damn, Gavi, you're a player. (laughs) And he proposes that they pretend to be dating in order to make Jen jealous and thus incite her to want to get them back together. They even make a contract, which I thought was very sweet. Um, And they keep, like, adding things to it. (laughs) But Laura's like, okay, fine. Like, you can put your hand in my ass pocket, but you can't kiss me. It's like, okay, well, you have to come to all all my friends' parties and my lacrosse games. And it just keeps going on and on back and forth. Over the course of several months, uh, Laura Jean starts to catch feelings. And she sees situations that most of which are misinterpreted because you have to talk to people that's (laughs) that's a big thing in this movie that we'll talk about later is communication really is the foundation like the climax of the movie is this big ski trip that when they were writing out their contract they're like oh that's not ever gonna we're 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 not gonna be together by the time that comes around don't worry about it Because it's like this high school trip where everybody loses their virginity and all this other stuff. It's that kind of deal. And she doesn't want to go. Because she's like, Jen's going to be there. All these guys I don't like are going to be there. Like, I'm kind of feeling iffy about Peter right now. And her friend Chris, who's Jen's cousin, ends up with Peter convincing her to go. Where during the climactic scene of the movie, her and Peter are in a hot tub and they confess their love. And they smooch. And it's great, but when she gets home, she um, is getting off the bus, and Jen talks about how Peter came to her came to her room that night. Laura, obviously very angry, understandably, is like, "No, you can't say you felt all that stuff about me and then do that. Like that's not a thing." And she just kind of cuts him off and leaves. Come to find out, somebody was filming them in the hot tub, posted about it on Instagram. And now everyone believes that she had sex with him. At this point, her older sister, Margot, who she has been lying to this entire time. Well, she hasn't really been lying to her. She just doesn't talk to her. She ignores her calls. She hasn't told her anything about what's going on. She comes home and finally Laura like breaks down and she's like, I can't. I can't lie to you. Well, all the boys show up at the house at the same time. Yeah, that's true. It's very Shakespearean. (laughs) It is like, that's one thing I kind of want to talk about is it is, it's very, as far as like the comedy is concerned and the romance and how that interacts, it's very Shakespearean comedy. All these people just happen to be here at the same time and there's this huge misunderstanding. Who would yeah, have thought? That's who very. Who would have thought? <laughs> it's, it's classic, but she finally, everything kind of kind of breaks down and calms down for a little bit and Kitty finally confesses. <laughs> to to sending the letters and to which laura jean i think with the most deadpan expression just goes i'm going to kill you <laughs> and like leaps over her over margo to try like chasing her around the house in classic sibling fashion but come to find out margo kitty and laura kind of all calm down and kitty gives her the box that had her letters back but she's put in all these notes that peter wrote to her over the course of them fake dating and it's like this chronicle of him falling in love with her and that comes up in like the later half of the movie is is she's just like she's so fucking clueless and it's so endearing (laughs) and she's just like well i liked him and he didn't like me back and there's i think it's lucas who finally tells her like if anybody fell for somebody who doesn't even think about them it's peter not you (laughs) yeah her neighbor is like finally at the end is like hey you need to tell after all this has happened her sister's gotten the video taken off of instagram Mm -hmm. peter has stood up for her at school and said like nothing actually happened Mm -hmm. and her neighbor whose name i forget who she wrote one of the letters to like she Josh, she finally talks to Josh and is like, hey, here's what happened. I'm really sorry. 
Like, I thought that I had these feelings for you, but I knew I couldn't do that to my sister. And it turns out, like, they're not, like, real relationship feelings. Like, they're just this, you know, she doesn't say this verbatim, but they're basically, like, a projection of her feelings. Yeah. And she tells him about Peter, and she's like, I know you don't like him. And, like, I'm having all these confusing feelings. And, you know, he could, like, I could tell him, and then he could not, you know, reciprocate. And that's when Kitty gives her the notes that Peter wrote her. And Josh is like, you gotta talk to him. And she's like, I can't. And Josh is like, why? And then she just, like, she does this thing with her face where she's like, what? (laughs) I I don't actually have a reason that I can't talk to him. Yeah. But the end scene is her writing a new love letter to him and reading it to him on the lacrosse field. And they kiss and walk away arm in arm. And it's very sweet. And I got very emotional. And it was just a really fulfilling story. I think that's like the word I settled on as I was thinking about it today. It was fulfilling. In a way that I think the romance genre is uniquely situated to be. Right. I I think so. Like, that's one of the things we we started talking a little bit about, like, contracts between authors and readers in certain genres. Mm -hmm. And I think in romance, that contract is especially strong. Like, you come to a romance novel because you want to see, like, two people who are, like, obviously attracted to each other. And then they have some kind of problems. And then they're, like, sad for like 30 to 40 pages and then by page 250 all is well and they've resolved their issues and now they can live happily ever after and smooch and that's really what you want (laughs) yeah exactly and everything worked out in the end and sometimes i really believe we just need stories like that we need things to work out in the end that's why i love as weird as they are, I love Shakespearean comedy because there's always a wedding at the end and everyone <laughs> comes together and everything is resolved and it's great. In tragedies, everything's great in the beginning and everyone's dead by the end. But it's like the opposite in comedies where if the sky is falling in act one, you're in a romance and you'll be okay. <laughs> uh, with the exception of Hamlet, I guess, where like yeah. his dad has been murdered and his uncle's having sex with his mom like yeah. a month later for everyone else though things are chill yeah that's true it's just as as most things in that play it's just hamlet oh hamlet oh hamlet i love you you crazy drama boy but yeah i, I think you're right i think there is i think there's something at play here with contracts not only between like author and reader but also i think it, it was interesting to look at that idea as a way to demonstrate how laura jean compartmentalizes her feelings about romance as an idea like something to be seen in media and something that exists in the real world because it's i think for her she wants it to be kind of like she wants everything to follow that specific plot Mm -hmm. because that's an easier way to digest it and like like thinking oh everything will work out rather than oh i have to work to make things work out Right. And the movie, I think it talks a little bit about how she has this fear of people leaving her. And she likes to experience romance as like this concept. But in real life, it turns out that she doesn't want to, even though she's had opportunities to, because she's afraid of getting hurt and of of people leaving her. And that's so real because that's what that it is takes. really real. Like there, there's a scene where she's talking to Peter because they've both lost parents in different ways. Laura Jean's mom passed away when she was young, and his father essentially abandoned them and has a whole new family. They have this very good scene in his kitchen where they talk about how that has affected her views on how love and affection kind of work and how she's more comfortable seeing it in movies than in real life because if it's in if it's real then it can get taken away from you and that's something that i i I think it's 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 very relatable like i related to it a lot 
because it's like it's like i always quote this one tumblr post because it is real it's like if we want to enjoy the the satisfaction and joys of being loved we must submit to the horror of being seen (laughs) because that's that's really what it is it's it's a kind of horror because and i think laura jean gets there at the end of of the movie is you have to be able to let someone see and hear you for what you are right because she talks about being invisible a lot Mm -hmm. that she's just she feels like she's just melted into the background for Mm -hmm. the her entire high school career and it turns out that she hasn't Genevieve, it turns out, is super mad, still super mad that she kissed Peter in middle school. Mm-hmm. Genevieve had a crush on Peter. And that scene was so funny. It's oh, like yeah. a bunch of like 12 year olds, and it's like the most innocuous kiss ever. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> Lara Jean is like, there wasn't even any tongue. And Genevieve says, there was tongue to me, or like, yeah, it was something like that. <laughs> it's just like, okay, Genevieve. God. All right. But also, like, I could kind of relate to that because that stuff is the kind of stuff that's important to you at that age. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. As, as ridiculous as we all were when we look back on it, like, oh, it yeah. felt like the end of the world at the time. So I kind of like that they left that in. Yeah, that age, I remember being that age. And just you couldn't talk about your feelings because there it was just too risky and it was mm-hmm. just too much. And you just, you could have gotten so, it would have been the worst thing ever because at that age, nothing's happened to you yet. <laughs> like the fear of rejection, I feel like is especially keen mm-hmm. at that age. Like we all have to go through it to show that we, show ourselves we can go through it at some point. You don't fucking want to. <laughs> no. It's like, no, why take the risk when I can exist in this fantasy world in my head? Like, that's relatable because that, yes. like, the, the versions of Josh and Peter that we see her envision in her head can't really hurt her because mm-hmm. they're not real. But, like, the betrayal she feels at the end of the ski trip when Genevieve reveals in in such a way that Laura Jean really believes that he hasn't changed and he's been playing her the whole time. Like, that betrayal is real. Yes. It hurt me so bad. Because, you know, I feel like we as the viewer understand throughout the course of the film that we're in her perspective. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the times that that perspective, even if we're seeing the same scenes and the same actions, may not be accurate. Yes. We recognize that her view is very limited. Mm Mm-hmm. And obviously, as genre-savvy experts, we Mm -hmm. understand what's happening far better than she does. I think that's part of the enjoyment of the romance novel and the romantic comedy is that you know, and you can be smug about it the whole time. Yes. I read The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang, I think is how you say her name. And I remember, like, the characters are also fake dating in that situation, but the main character is paying the guy to teach her how to have sex because she thinks that she's bad at sex and that she won't be able to get married until she figures that out. (laughs) And (laughs) Uh, it's also really great because... um, the main it's one of the only romance novels i've ever read where the main character isn't neurotypical she has autism and is very comfortable with that mm-hmm. but the point of this tangent is that in that novel like you get to be very smug because the, both the characters are fighting this feel the feelings that they're having they're like oh no i'm really attracted to this person and i haven't felt this way before and i can't feel this way because we're in a business relationship and she doesn't really want me she's just paying me so she can you know get married to someone else and Mm -hmm. um she's like oh no i'm paying him to to do this that's why he's doing all these nice things for me like he doesn't actually 
like me and he's probably actually like disgusted by me because I have to pay someone in order to learn how to be in a relationship and it's like of course they actually like are perfect for each other and are madly in love but they won't they won't accept it and that's sort of that's why I love fake relationships because I get to be smug the whole time yes yes like that was me this whole movie the second you know the promise you know the ending Oh, yeah, and you get to be so – I was a smug little goblin the whole time. Oh, a my God. A smug little hand-rubbing goblin. <laughs> yes, the whole time. That scene with the hot tub where it's it's about the yogurt drinks, and he oh. talks about it's – a, it's a really quick moment, but I thought it was very sweet, where he talks about – he's basically trying to tell her without saying the words that he loves her, and she's just not getting it, and it's such a frustrating scene. Because it's like we're hearing the same words, but she's hearing something completely different. Mostly out of fear. Because she still believes somewhere in her mind, and this is confirmed in the next scene with Genevieve being Genevieve, that she's always going to be second best to him. Mm -hmm. And he talks about these yogurt drinks, because he drives her and Kitty to school. Her and Kitty will usually bring these yogurt drinks from this, like, Korean grocery store across town. So... When they're going to the ski trip, she doesn't sit next to him on the bus. She sits next to Chris, who's her friend, because she's still kind of nervous about the whole prospect of going on this ski trip. But he reveals to her that he got them snacks. He planned out what they were going to do the whole ride. Like, he was so excited just to spend time with her. And she's just like, so you really like yogurt? (laughs) And I'm just like, this is a mood. (laughs) <laughs> and I hate that it is. It was one of those things where I'm like, safe option. You just took it. But that's not <laughs> the truth. It made me feel very soft. I was very soft yes. the whole time I watched it. There was one thing I wanted to bring up on a technical level, and I'm not mm-hmm. really sure how to explain this. There was something about the cinematography of this movie that was just really special to me. Yes, we both noticed, I think, the same thing. Yes. And and I'm not really sure how to explain it other than it didn't look how I anticipated a teen romance film to look. Yeah, I think it had to do with the depth of field mm-hmm. on the camera because there are a couple of shots where it just seems like the shot goes back and back and back. And a lot of rom-coms, I think, don't do anything with the background Mm-hmm. Like, it's all in the foreground. It's all very square. It's all very flat. It's like a painting, kind of dimensionally speaking. But in this movie, they extended the shot so that, like, you get the sense of, like, foreground, middle ground, and background. There's a scene, the one that's coming to mind is where they are watching... 16 Candles on the couch. It's Largine, Peter, and her little sister Kitty are watching 16 Candles. And, like, Kitty's legs come up and come out of focus in the shot. And then they're in the middle ground. And then there's, like, the background is out of focus. But, like, that dimension, like, it wasn't right up on them, like, on the couch. And I really like that. Like, I don't get a sense of dimension from a lot of films that i've seen lately that's a great way to put it i think i think it is about there was a depth to it that i think is not a style that is very popular with that kind of genre it is very much about like the it's basically just about the foreground and like the two shot the close-ups all that other stuff and there's and that's fine and that's a perfectly efficient way to make movies but I really think it it's it added to the storytelling, not just the cinematography, but like how everyone was dressed, especially Laura Jean. Mm-hmm. Like she's, um, we both remember this. There was um, an interview where they talk about her style and how she dresses to look pretty, but not to look pretty for other people. Yes, as a concept, I love that because it was it was all about like because in the movie, Laura Jean is half Korean. I believe Jenny Han has, has spoken about how it's like she's, as a character, supposed to be very interested in fashion. So she's like, she's a lot of this, what she wears in the movie is very inspired by like Korean streetwear. 
it's most prevalent. It's very, it's established very early. Genevieve tries to like come at her about something on like the first day of school, as you do in these films. <laughs> she's talking about her boots and is like making fun of them because they're like, they're combat boots, essentially. So she's like, LOL, thank you for your service. And Laura Jean's like, they're vintage, but I got them on Etsy, like everybody does. Like, what are you talking about? And then her cousin Chris comes up and makes fun of her because she's wearing the basic white girl uniform of like North Face jacket, jeans, Uggs. That was kind of, it was was just a good moment for me because it sets up that dichotomy of, that isn't really a dichotomy for most of the film, except in Laura Jean's mind between Mm -hmm. her and Jen. Yeah, the Uggs were the basic tipping point. And I feel like, I feel like Jen does dress in a way that is for other people Mm, yes like i remember seeing her at there's a party scene and she's wearing this red dress yeah and like that dress felt like it was for other people's benefit yeah it was almost like it looked almost like lingerie like it was just so clearly for the enjoyment of other people and laura jean doesn't dress like that Mm-hmm. and it very purposefully doesn't dress like that and that i think is is something that kind of flies in the face of some of the more I, they're not quite archaic i just want to believe they are <laughs> conventions the one i always think about is she's all that where mm-hmm. they basically give this girl a makeover and she gets with freddie prince jr and like props to you i wanted to get with freddie prince jr at that time but like it's not typical and we're going back i think in trends with romance movies in our production meeting you had a great point how you watched austin land which is from like 2013 and even that's kind of cringy and that's not that long ago as far as like how we're how we're treating women as a consumable mm-hmm. differently in not not just romance movies but i think it's most prevalent in romance movies I really, really want to believe that we're going out of that trend because that's something that, and I think this is worth mentioning, is the majority of the creative, like the big creative staff on this movie, like the director and the writer, are women. <laughs> Amazing how that makes a difference, isn't Amazing. it? Amazing. It does make it does make a difference, and you see other movies where women are essentially accessories Mm -hmm. to male stories. And most of those are written and directed by men. (laughs) Imagine. (laughs) Like, imagine. That's a thing. And 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 we're not being revolutionary by saying that. Many, many people have noticed that. But I I think it, it has a very unique application in this kind of genre because I, I think often we try to lean towards empowering people which i think can be a good thing but in the case of this plot it really is about laura jean stepping out of her ideas of what a love story should be and also making herself vulnerable to other people Mm -hmm. it which you can't have a successful relationship without yeah that that was the thing that i really loved that they they really kind of brought that home is that she wasn't open and and communicating with any of the people in her life. And that's part of the reason she wrote the letters. Another part was probably fear. The way I kind of got some of the story at the end was that the people who she wrote those letters to weren't necessarily real either. Right. The version of Josh that she wrote that letter to was not who Josh really was, Mm -hmm. even if she wrote it in middle school. And I think we're all guilty of that at some point of um, idealizing people, whether it's in a romantic sense or not. Yeah. And obviously that's something that I think is is, has become more prevalent as as we continually discuss the cult of celebrity Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But I think that's also a thing we can do with like the people closer to us in our lives. Yeah. I mean, I think... The thing is, like, no matter what you do, like, as much as you care about someone and try to know them, you have to realize that to a certain extent, your understanding of them as a person is constructed 
And the degree to which that construction matches reality is really within, like, your control. Yeah. To a certain, it's never going to match exactly, like, a person's thoughts and feelings are always, to a certain extent, private and unshareable and unknowable, but not to get, like, too existential with y'all, but I really do believe No, I'm following, I'm following. (laughs) But, like, you can control... Like, what makes it into the construction or not? And, like, the things that are ugly about a person. Because I, th- I don't think ugly is bad. Let me first <laughs> clarify that. Yeah, because I, I think it, everybody is a mix of what we would view as, as beautiful and ugly things. And none of that is inherently bad. Yeah, so how much of the ugly things you let in, you 100% have control over that. And some people don't let any ugliness in and put fake things in in its place and it's just like well that is particularly problematic yeah i agree because i i think that can lead to so many problems in any kind of relationship that we see in this film where laura jean at some point because she doesn't want to be seen essentially doesn't see anybody else like she doesn't really see peter until the very end of the movie even though he is trying so hard <laughs> to to just open up and tell her things even if he doesn't say the words his actions say something and she's just not picking up what he's putting down to the point where like, we're all standing there like oh my god you fucking idiot what's wrong yes. with you and she's like that to herself at the end <laughs> yeah where she's just like oh this happened oh man <laughs> I think that's very important. I think that's very important for that age group because I did not learn that until probably the last few years as far as like interpersonal romantic relationships go mm-hmm. that you you can't create this version of yourself for somebody else. Like it will inherent like <laughs> as far as making yourself be a person that you're not. Right. Yeah, you have to be open and honest, and it's very difficult and very scary. It is. It is really scary, and I like that the film shows that it's scary. Sometimes you sometimes you just have to jump out of your bedroom window on the second floor, fall a story, and then ride away on your bicycle to escape having conversations with people. You just have to. Yeah. Sometimes that's just how it be. That's just how it be. Do you want to talk about something that we thought was really cool, which is the fact that this main character isn't white? (laughs) Yes. I think the two main films that I I think we, that have been topics of discussion as far as um, Asian American representation, particularly for Asian American women, is um, this movie and Crazy Rich Asians. And how over the course of the past year, even up until last month when Sandra Oh became like the first Asian American woman to win a Golden Globe in for acting in like 37 years or something crazy. When we talk about differences of representation, oftentimes I think we want to think that it is quite literally just about black and white. And that's not true. And I like that this year, I think this movie kind of helped bolster that conversation is how the pitiful amount of representation asian american people have yeah lana condor who plays laura jean has like said in interviews that it's something that really affected her like it always had i think from from what i remember of her interview if i find the post of it i will post to the twitter but she was talking about how from a very young age she was she was aware of it that if she wanted to go into acting, like, that was something she was going to have to face, that there weren't really roles written for her. And that, you know, you you just have to try to be the best version of yourself that you can be, which makes me kind of sad because that's so heavy yeah. to have as, like, a teenager going into acting. Like, you just want to be an X-Men. <laughs> But you've got to worry about all the, all this stuff. But I, I remember she was saying ever since this film came out, there's been people that have, like, come up to her on the street. Extremely emotional. Like, like young women her age who are, like, you know, seeing you on TV, like, I saw myself in that. And that's something I think we, we as white women can only understand to a certain extent. Right. 
because even though, yeah, we do have that gender divide, it's not the same thing. And it's okay that it's not the same thing. Like, I, I get kind of frustrated. It, it This kind of ties back into the whole, my feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit <laughs> thing, which is the hill I will die on. Everyone's victimhood is not created equal. And that's just what it is. My experience as a woman is nothing like Lana Condor's because she is also Vietnamese American. Right. And she deals with all the intersections that deal with that. And that doesn't mean we can't be empathetic to that and we should be empathetic to that, but or sympathetic rather. But there comes a time, I think, when we have to kind of start to understand when your voice is most needed. It is kind of a meme now because <laughs> for those of you who blissfully do not know this, a few years ago, there was a movie, an, uh, an American adaptation of an anime called Ghost in the Shell. And Scarlett Johansson played the main character who is Japanese in the source material. And even though from what I remember, somebody was trying to tell me, oh, well, the Japanese audience didn't mind. I'm like, well, that's all fine and good. That says something to an American audience. Right. That was that was the thing about it is that, like, you can't equate Japanese Americans with Japanese people. Like, they're not the same. <laughs> no, it's it's inherently not the same thing. <laughs> the other thing I heard about that was super weird is that they, one, cast a white actress to play that role and then tried to make her look more Asian in post. Yeah, that was creepy. And then there was the whole thing where Emma Stone played a native Hawaiian in a movie Ugh, at one point. Yeah. And Sandra Oh called her and Scarlett Johansson out in their monologue at the Golden Globes. And Emma Stone tried to, like, insert herself into this, being like, oh, I'm sorry. And it's just like, nobody cares, Emma. <laughs> nobody cares. I read a comment somebody had made. It was, on as, as I get most things, on Tumblr, on, like, gifts of Sandra O's face, which was amazing. And by amazing, I mean it looked like she could have just killed Emma Stone. But it, it was about how, like, this need to somehow make yourself a victim. Right. And I'm not really sure where to go with that, but I think that's something that is important to that overall conversation. Because we talk sometimes, every once in a while we talk about white feminism I think in order to have meaningful conversations about how this kind of representation affects people, like, we as white women have to understand that it's never going to affect us the same way it can affect someone else. And that requires you to put aside a certain amount of ego. And I think that also is kind of what the movie can, you can kind of see it be about, is it's about putting aside ego in a different way, clearly, but, like, it just struck me as something that seemed like it was, even, even if it wasn't on purpose, and I think sometimes these things rarely are, unless you have a movie like Get Out, which is very clearly involved in a conversation, it, it added to that conversation of why it's important to have stories like that. Because if, if I'm remembering correctly, Jenny Han had a lot of trouble finding a, a production company that wasn't going to whitewash Laura Jean. Right. And that would have been, I think, unfortunate, even though the character's Asian heritage isn't a critical part of the movie. Like, just the fact that it's there is important to just allow someone else to be in existence. Does that make sense? Like, we don't have to remove... Yeah minorities from public view because they're minorities so i don't know yeah. it's because someone i think i had read tried to say that you know tried to basically say that it wasn't important what the character's race was and jenny han was like if it's not important then why can't she be asian american exactly and i feel that on like a molecular level for real it always reminds me of people want to talk about comics, I think, in the same sense. Like, when when something gets adapted into a movie, like when there were rumors that, that Zendaya was Mary Jane in Spider-Man Homecoming, and people wanted to get so mad about it. And it's just like, who cares? 
There is nothing about Mary Jane Watson's character that is intrinsically tied to her being white. Yeah, it's... There's nothing. And then people try to be like, gotcha, and they're like, oh, what if Luke Cage was white? I'm like, that would be racist, because there's parts of Luke Cage's character that are inexorably tied to him being a black man in America. Right. It's not like Mary Jane grew up in poor white Appalachia, and like, yeah, her entire personality is therefore informed by that particular brand of whiteness like that's not a thing exactly that's not a thing so i completely agree with you that i think it's it's important going forward to just let people have stories i think we're almost at a crossroads this is a a bit of another shift and i apologize my dear listeners but i really hope we're at a shift in lgbt filmmaking can we stop make everything a fucking tragedy (laughs) Because, well, yes, those stories do happen. They're important. And I get that. Love, Simon fucking destroyed me. (laughs) And I wish we could have stories where someone just happens to be X. And I think encouraging that kind of filmmaking and encouraging that roles be written for people of color and everyone who's not a straight white dude, like, or a straight white woman for that matter. That, I think, is a hurdle we're going to need to jump across. I think we need to get over the idea that there has to be a reason for something to be not white. Yes. Agreed. And also, we need to start letting people direct and produce these movies. Because we're still doing a terrible job. Like, women... Did any women get nominated for director at the golden globes this year no i don't think so so like we're i think we're doing better like in front of the camera but the behind the camera stuff is still real bad as a general i agree yeah and i just i just want to acknowledge that because like the more people we let actually behind the camera and telling these stories the better the in front of the camera is gonna get Exactly. And yeah, I think the only woman I remember distinctly off the top of my head who got nominated for a major award, a woman of color, I should say, was a um, the woman who was in charge of production design for Black Panther, which, yeah, fucking give her an award. It was great. <laughs> like the fact that I don't think Ryan Coogler got nominated for Best Director and Best Director and I'm kind of pissed about it. But but yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think it's it's good to have people behind the camera who relate to the experiences of people on camera whether that's from a race gender sexuality or any of the the combination of those things i think that's important because i think that can lend a kind of authenticity that is often lost another kind if that if if there's a disconnect there yeah i agree yeah we just need to let more people do things that's all like it doesn't it should that's it (laughs) let people with disabilities do things let people who aren't neurotypical do things let people who aren't white or male just let them do things. Stop being weird about it. Like, that's the thing. Yeah, People are exactly. like, get, they get so weird about it. They're like, well, why does it matter? I'm like, it matters. <laughs> it just does. It's just like, are you not paying any attention? You're so oblivious. Like, it's like you're choosing not to acknowledge that these things are happening. That's that's it. <sighs> I feel like there was something else we wanted to talk about. What was it? Oh, I know there's also a lot of call-outs to classic romance movies from the 80s, mm-hmm. which we've talked about. But the opening scene was how I knew I was going to love the movie because it's so, for me, so deeply evocative of A Room with a View from 1985, which is one of my favorite movies. It's like Moonstruck and then A Room with a View. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but because I had never seen that movie, I thought it was evocative of the end of 2005 Pride and Prejudice where Darcy's like walking through the moors. So we had like a moment in our production meeting where we're like, does this mean multiple things or is it just a trope? We don't know. <laughs> but there's moments in, in the movie that are very evocative as illusions. The one, there's the Room with the View, Pride and Prejudice, tropey field thing in the beginning. And um, another one is a, it's sort of a mirror of the opening shot of 16 Candles where Peter's walking through the cafeteria with his hand in Laura Jean's back pocket. Mm-hmm. 
and almost the color palette of it kind of made me feel a bit John Hughesy. The fact that it ends on a field kind of like the end of Breakfast Club. Yes. Kind of. Yeah. I kind of imagined as I was watching the film that Laura Jean was very into John Hughes. Yes. And that particular portrayal, that like Molly Ringwald era mm-hmm. of romance, which is <laughs> kind of questionable when you look back on it. But when, when you see it through the rose, the rose tinted sunglasses of a 16 year old, like that's it. That's right. the best. And that's so relatable. There was something weirdly at moments like candy colored about everything. And it it was like it evoked this. It, it, if it wasn't for the fact that everyone had cell phones and was talking about Instagram, they probably could have said it in like any time they wanted. Yeah, it was very classic, I think. And mm-hmm. both in its structure and in some of the aesthetic choices and i wonder if it's because in part that high schools do something like that because institutional buildings like that don't change very Mm. often having things set in high schools and i think we saw this with riverdale to a certain extent though riverdale i think was trying to do some stuff with like the 1950s aesthetic because uh our friend listened to the episode recently and texted us and was like the cars and we were like the cars and we were like the cars cars. (laughs) yeah they were all 50s cars and we didn't notice because we don't know anything about cars but she did i don't know shit (laughs) and we were like yes now that you've pointed that out that's very clear that these are older cars and we're just not paying attention to the cars too busy looking at all the clothes and the hot people but oh for real anyway i think this movie has a little bit of that and i wonder a little bit if it's because high schools just don't change (laughs) yeah i really think like despite all the cultural shifts the high school experience doesn't really change yeah there's just something about being somewhere between 13 and 18 years old that is one confusing miserable exhilarating and terrifying and you just have to deal with it (laughs) your body doesn't make sense no one else makes any sense you don't know what you're supposed to be doing you're not a kid anymore but you're not an adult do you have any final thoughts about the movie that you'd like to share with me with us here today (laughs) (laughs) I think um, my last closing thought is I, I'm i glad that it didn't feel the need to, for lack of a better phrase, flex on us <laughs> more than the story required. Because as I've talked about on this show, I, have, I will go on a rampage against anyone who says romance readers or viewers need to be challenged. We don't. We don't. And I love that this movie... Even though you know the basic plot, it it switches things up just enough to be that little bit unexpected and I think to be more enjoyable. One of the things I mentioned in our production meeting was I really enjoy how the gender roles are a little bit almost flipped in so far as instead of the lovesick girl falling in love with the clueless guy, it's Peter falling in love for a clueless Laura Jean. <laughs> And we know that's happening, and that, I think, is where the real enjoyment of it comes, is we know it's happening, and we know it's good. I really liked that it was just a movie that was comfortable in what it was, because I think if it wasn't, it would have shown. Yes. Any movie that allows me to be a delighted, smug little goblin gets an A. (laughs) Yes. This has an A in my heart. All right, robots, that's going to wrap us up for this episode of Remedial Studies. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion of To All the Boys I've Loved Before as much as we enjoyed uh, watching and discussing the movie. We've done all the work for you. It's amazing. Uh, Next time, we are going to be dipping back into the book side of things. We're also going to be reading our first classic in a while. Maybe ever? Does Lolita count as a classic? I think Lolita can count as a classic. It's our first classic since Lolita, which was like episode six. (laughs) We are reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, 
which uh, I haven't actually read for a while, so I'm very intrigued to, to, to absorb everything again and to bring you my changed thoughts. I'm sure they'll change from when I read it when I was like 17. <laughs> That's what we're going to be doing next time. Um, I will also be putting out an extended schedule just to kind of have on our Twitter and Instagram because we do have uh, about the next month or two planned out. So we're doing Frankenstein next. Uh, then we are continuing our remedial read-along with The Fifth Elephant, which is the fourth, no, fifth book <laughs> in the uh, City Watch uh, string of the Discworld series. And then after that, we're doing our D&D Extravaganza Palooza. The name gets longer every time I say it, which if you have any questions for that, please send them in. Like, we've never really asked for that before, but if you have anything you are specifically wanting to hear about, we're going to talk about our D&D game. I'll probably talk about being a dungeon master for a little bit. If you have anything specific you want to ask us, like, please send that in. We've gotten exponentially more fan mail than we ever have in the past, like, two months. And that doesn't seem real most of the time, uh, but it is, and you're real people, and we love you. Even though we still call you robots, because we have a brand to maintain. Speaking of brands to maintain, what are our social media? Our social media, uh, uh, what is social media? I've forgotten. Um, <laughs> we're on Tumblr, uh, at remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter, at remedialstudies. We're on Instagram, at the same handle. And uh, you can email us at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. And you should like, rate, review, interact with us in some way. While I am sure that some of you are real now, much to my surprise, uh, I'm, I know. I'm still pretty sure that uh, 30 people on a small Greek island did not download this podcast on the same day. Uh, but that remains to be seen. Uh, <laughs> that remains to be seen we don't know not for sure if you're if you're one of those 30 people in the greek isles who listen to the show please email us yeah we're it curious. can be in greek we'll put it we'll put it through <laughs> google translate right so on that note uh bye robots bye robots <laughs>